Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast episode 60. I'm Tian and Duyeb and like many hospitals around the UK, the NHS cyber hack means I got no time for patience. So let's get straight into this show. And yes, that is the joke I'm starting with. Yes, the NHS suffered a cyber attack over the weekend, causing many sci-fi fans like myself to wonder if they just got confused when trying to find the Doctor. But no, it was instead, and I'll use very clever computer talk here, some internet bastard doing naughty computer things. While you're probably thinking, Tiernan, why are you even talking about this? Even though you can do all that clever computer talk, you don't do a Tech Geek podcast and this show isn't as good as Reply All. Yeah, I know, but it seems that this may have been the result of the government refusing to spend money on extending a support scheme for government computers using Windows XP back in 2015. Something that was authorised by then Home Secretary and Witchfinder General Theresa May. Which is odd, as I'd have thought an outdated robot like her would be more than up for supporting an obsolete computer system. If any of you are thinking that my constant weekly referring to Theresa May as some sort of android is harsh, then you were clearly lucky enough to avoid her appearance on The One Show with her husband, uh, James May. Or Brian? No one really cares, do they? Anyway, the Prime Minister used her appearance on television's equivalent of boring a hole into your brain using a pastel-coloured drill bit to communicate with humans by twice saying her childhood was stable, that she liked buying nice shoes because that's what the humans do, and at one point when her husband, uh. Theresa Mann, probably, replied to a question on how it was to negotiate with May at home. He said, I get to decide when I take the bins out, and she followed by saying, there are boy jobs and there are girl jobs. Either this is a confusingly patronising view on equality from someone who, having become Prime Minister, should assume that there are no boundaries to anyone doing any job, or perhaps she's just pointing out that the Conservative manifesto is going to promise to bring back child labour. This was just a day before Theresa May announced that what her party's manifesto would have was a free vote for MPs to end the ban on fox hunting. Yeah, that'll sway any swing voters concerned about the cost of living, but mostly just waiting to get on all the horses they own with all the many hounds they have and kick off the steam they've created struggling with an ailing public services by tearing the crap out of a small mammal. It's just what the just about managings have been crying out for. Or it's a subtle way of saying that after another five years of this government, hunting for food may be most people's only option of survival. This may explain why the Conservative frontbench is so devoid of anyone bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. 
Today, May took to Facebook Live to respond to voters' questions and the fox hunting came up quite a lot. Also, she made some ridiculous comments about how work is the best route out of poverty, completely ignoring all those people who are working and still in poverty. Overall, she was photobombed by 9.8 thousand Paul Nuttall tributes during the Facebook Live hour. Oh, no, wait, sorry. I mean angry faces, which is much, much better. Brilliant. Like. Laughy face. At the time of recording this show, the manifestos haven't quite been released, but that's okay because someone in Labour's team, being ever helpful, leaked a draft version to the press last week. Every week they become less and less of a party and more of an ultimate fighting cage match where everyone taking part decides the best way to destroy their opponent is to keep running headfirst into metal posts. The leaked and supposedly draft Labour manifesto contained a lot of policies that are very popular in the public eye, including renationalising the railways, creating a national care service and a rise in corporation tax. These are all things much of the newspapers then referred to as Labour wanting to drag us back to the 1970s, which has confused me as now it's even less clear exactly what time period the papers would actually like us to all be dragged back to. I'm hoping for some point in the early 1600s personally, as then there weren't any newspapers around and it's much easier to avoid a piece of slate that's boringly contradicting itself on a weekly basis depending on its own financial interests. The main complaint from the Conservative Party about Labour's leaked manifesto was that Corbyn's promises that a Labour government would be extremely cautious about using the Trident nuclear weapons would somehow cause chaos. Yeah, it's a stupid comment, though to be fair, if the Conservatives were to just nuke the crap out of the Earth killing absolutely everyone, it would actually be pretty peaceful and quiet on the planet for some time afterwards, so I suppose maybe they do have a point. You do suspect if the Conservative manifesto wasn't leaked on account of it just being the word strong and stable written 400 times over, and then just several pictures of dead fox trophies. Meanwhile, Labour leader and man whose name sounds like someone being excited by rubbish, Jeremy Corbyn, decided to capitalise on good press by banning BuzzFeed from attending Labour press events because they printed a nice interview with him. Great work, Jezza. Next, you may as well aim for 10 Downing Street by expelling members who are trying to unseat the worst health secretary the UK's seen since, well, the health secretary before that, by, you know, backing the NHA party candidate in that area as part of a potentially successful progressive alliance. Huh? What? Oh, oh, they've already been suspended, all three of them. Oh, for fuck's sake. Meanwhile, in the US, President and Amber Grease with features, Donald Trump fired the director of the FBI, James Comey, because nothing says, trust me, I don't have connections with Russia, like eliminating the person currently holding an investigation into whether or not you can be trusted over connections with Russia. Trump may as well have done it while wearing a Russian Ashanka hat, put Prochet in capitals and sealed the letter with fucking polonium. Oh, and while the Eurovision Song Contest was won by Portugal's entry, a man who looked a bit like a mouse made human through magic, singing the sort of ballad you'd find on a Netflix drama pretending to be meaningful, the UK did better than expected with our entry despite Brexit. Turns out maybe everyone's happier knowing they won't actually have to deal with us in the European Union in future. Though the UK's entry, Lucy Jones singing Never Give Up On You, was really pushing it. Yes, lots to talk about on this week's show, as per all the time ever, and two interviews as well. Yes! two interviews but before that um firstly thank you very very much for listening to this and a very quick question for you about well quickness i suppose but again this week's episode is a bit of a long one and you may have noticed as the listeners that they seem to be getting a lot longer as well because you know news keeps happening I can't help but feel if I'd started this podcast circa around 2010, the podcast would have been about 20 minutes long to begin with, but 
Look, here's a question. Is the podcast now too long? Or are you happy with me droning on for about an hour 15 every week? Because I'm keen to not miss things out, but I'm also aware that some of you might have better things to do with your life, you know, like, say, boo to geese or practice your yodelling. So let me know. Should I cut down content and focus on less stuff or continue as we are, and I promise I'll never make it over an hour 15 unless it also includes some seriously advanced yodelling tips? But keeping it down is why I've had to ignore all the Trump stuff lately, apart from the few gags at the top of the show, as there just isn't time to fit in all of that mayhem as well as all the election stuff. But I mean, why would he put tapes into quotation marks in his tweet? Does that mean they aren't tapes? Does it mean he's just making mental recordings and then he says them out loud when someone presses his nose? Does the fact that he's threatening Comey with the possibilities that he has tapings of their conversations means that he's wiretapped himself and has committed an illegal act? Oh God, there's so much to mention and so, so little time. Plus, to be fair, John Oliver Anthony Atamuric on The President Show and many other podcasts do the American thing much, much better anyway. But look, let me know your thoughts. Do you want more stuff and a longer show? Do you want less stuff and a shorter show? Uh, drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Bro Facebook group, which is gradually getting more posts from people other than me, which is very, very nice. Please do that. Um, or you can email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Obviously, I say it every week. Uh, considering there is probably going to be a decrease in democracy from June the 9th in the UK, you know, I sort of feel I may as well balance it out by at least pretending to listen to your views about this show. Uh, sorry, I mean, listen to your views. Oh, oh, God. Big, big thank you this week to Philip and David who have become Megapod listeners by donating to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. What should I call people that join that? I was going with Bros, but it feels a little bit sexist. Uh, and parpolsis is sounds stupid. It just, they sound shit. Uh, any ideas, send them over. Um, also, thank you to Rainy, Andrew and Andrew, or Andy and Andy, or Andrew and Andy, or Drew and Anne. I don't know how they prefer to be called. They're two different Andrews. Anyway, thanks to all three of them who all donated to the Kofi at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. And a little bit of a plea this week um i know i beg for donations every week but a little bit of a plea because sadly the usual parpol bro microphone died a death last week yeah just four months out of warranty damn you h1 zoom people um and to be fair i probably killed it off by singing too many awful jingles into it it may well have shortened its lifespan but as a result i've had to fork out for a new one and i'll be honest i got a better one on recommendation and doesn't it doesn't it sound lovely how's my timber is it nice is it? And that sounds a bit like how's my wood. It's a bit, a bit dodgy. But anyway, um, it's nice. It's a bit like HD, but for voices. And I feel like you can almost hear the definition of my tonsils. Um, however, this microphone did cost me a lot more than I would have liked. And while that is entirely my own selfish, stupid choice, if you have been thinking about joining the Patreon or donating to the Kofi account, then doing so this month would really, really help me out. Not just to cover the costs of the tiny coffin I'm going to have to make for my old H1 Zoom before, you know, I bury it somewhere noisy, which I think is what it would have wanted. Uh, rest in noises. Uh, oh, and as always, if you don't want to donate or can't donate, then obviously uh, you don't have to. I like the fact that this is free. I want it to continue to be so. Um, but please, please, please then do give this show a review on iTunes. And while you're there, have a look at some of the other very witty comments from previous reviewers. This week's one was very good. Um, I'm very impressed with you lot. You're very good. Uh, and also, if you're on Stitcher, uh, give the show a review there too. It's only got two on there. And also, like and subscribe and all those other things that help lure other unsuspecting ears this way please do that um lastly admin wise uh, tickets are selling fastish to the fuck the election show on election night june the 8th at the phoenix cavendish square in oxford circus if you are around and you fancy having a laugh before emperor may bans that sort of thing on june the 9th then do come along tickets are available from wegottickets.com if you search for partly political broadcast or the phoenix cavendish square or any of those things uh, again the, it's, the internet's quite easy when you get to grips with it 
If you have small people and you're London-based, please bring them along to the kids' show I'm doing on June the 4th with Tatton uh, Spiller from Simple Politics. Uh, he's been a guest on this podcast lots. And uh, we've also got some ace improvisers coming along as well um, who are going to improvise some of the policies that children suggest and the possible consequences of them. And we're going to explain the whole general election thing to children because, let's face it, most of them are going to be way above the levels of childishness that happen in the Commons anyway. So that is June the 4th at Underbelly Festival on the South Bank and you can get those tickets from Underbelly festival.com website if you look up what's this general election thing about anyway lastly if you're in Birmingham I am hosting the Stand Up for Refugees event at the Birmingham Rep on May the 31st where all the money is going to help refugees uh, wonderful wonderful charity um, I know I've mentioned this many weeks in a row and we're selling really well but we need to sell more so we can get more money to that charity and the bill now is um, as well as me uh, Joe Lysett, Nish Kumar, Mrs Barbara Nice, Tez Ilias, Alison, Jean Smith I can now announce that Al Murray is also on the bill it's going to be brilliant uh, tickets are 20 quid, but it is all for help refugees. So obviously you get lots of karma points in return, which you can cash in whenever you need to, I don't know, flick a child in the face. I, I don't know how it balances out. Um, you can get the tickets for that at the Birmingham Rep Theatre website or via the Stand Up for Refugees Facebook page, which, to be fair, just has a link to the Birmingham Theatre Rep website. But I guess sometimes typing fingers need exercise as well. So you might want to do that. Right. This week, uh, I am speaking to Marcus Roberts at YouGov, who explains what polls are actually all about. What are they about? Wait and see. Uh, I also chat to Josh Dell at Bite the Ballot about getting all those young people motivated to votivated. Plus, elections, smellections and melections. But first... Ransomware sounds a bit like a clothing label designed by a rapper, but actually it's a malware programme that locks your computer until, in the case last week, you pay $300 which post-Brexit, I think, is about 12 million quid. The attack last week hit 47 NHS trusts in England, 13 in Scotland and apparently none in Wales. Well done, Wales. But also it targeted companies such as FedEx, Renault and the Russian Interior Ministry too. And when you hear all that, you think Wales probably feels a little bit left out. It's all right, guys. It's all right. I'm sure your time will come. You know, if you ever get any decent Wi-Fi connections. But while this is mostly a story with the moral of bloody hell just update your computer's security so it's not like fitting your hard drive with chainmail in order to fight off a nuke, it's also worth looking at why this hit the NHS England and Scotland so hard. Jeremy Hunt, a man who thinks his position as health secretary just means removing himself from threats as often as possible, has raised his stupid emu head above the parapet to say that more than 80% of the NHS was unaffected by that hacking. I wonder if Jeremy Hunt got hit in the face with a brick, he'd feign being fine because only 20% of his features were a mess. The 20% of NHS trusts that were hit were hit hard with lots of surgeries and appointments cancelled. MIT and CT scanners wouldn't work and it appears a lot of it was down to these NHS trusts having not updated their security software for some years. The government have called out the NHS on this saying that they're spending £50 million improving NHS service security, that all these trusts have been repeatedly warned to update and Security Minister Ben Wallace has said that these trusts have enough money to protect themselves. Which is partly true, except a large amount of the money saved for the NHS is having to be used to bail out other parts of the hospitals like the A&E departments and two years ago the government decided not to bother renewing a £5.5 million deal with Microsoft to support all government computers using Windows XP. Because yeah, it's not just wages in the UK that haven't changed since 2007. Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth has highlighted the National Audit Office report that shows that last year the Department of Health transferred £950 billion of its £4.6 billion budget for stuff like NHS IT and instead they used it for day-to-day NHS activities like A&E and all the really important stuff. 
So saying the NHS have the money to update their security software isn't wrong. They just have to use some of that money for the other more important bits that the government have cut funding from. And frankly, I'd opt for still being able to do emergency procedures and play Minesweeper than lose patients because you're spending half an hour trying to work out where the start button on Windows Vista is. So now the question is whether this will happen again before there's any improvement to the NHS Trust software security, which is unlikely considering the government's investigatory powers bill suggests they think the best way of stopping people hacking into software is to leave all the windows open for them. Pun mostly intended on the windows bit. Microsoft say they are aware of the flaw in their software and that Friday's attack was a wake-up call, which I guess at least means it probably just made a very pleasing sound, if nothing else. Dun-dun-dun-dun... It must be hard for the Conservative Party, eh? Never having lucky escapes, never having things go their way in life, you know what I mean? Well, don't worry. I am pleased to say that finally, finally, they have had a bit of a break from the endless torment of their privileged lives. Yeah, that is right. They are facing absolutely zero charges from the Crown Prosecution Service for expenses breaches in 2015. Yeah, justice is served! How far exactly can I push this sarcastic tone of voice? For anyone who was hoping that this would be the 2017 elections deus ex machina galloping along to save the day, the Crown Prosecution Service have said that while there was enough evidence to suggest that spending returns were inaccurate for the 2015 election for about 15 Conservative candidates, there is not enough evidence to prove that the individuals involved acted knowingly and dishonestly. Which isn't, as Theresa May put it, an admittance from the Crown Prosecution Service that everything was properly reported. It's more proof that they did it all wrong, but the legal bods don't know if it was due to evil or stupidity. Neither of which is great pre-election for your campaign, is it? Do you want someone who's potentially either evil with money or really stupid? Vote Conservative. The Electoral Commission fined them £70,000 in March for breaking the rules on expenses, so their lack of criminal convictions and a fine barely bigger than what Ian Duncan Smith spends on breakfasts means it's worth everyone keeping a very, very beady eye on their 2017 expenditures for anything either very evil or very, very stupid. In Germany's everyone's favourite non-circular Chancellor, Angela Merkel news... You know, because Angela, it's not circular, yeah, yeah, no... Jesus, all right. Anyway, Angela Merkel's party, CDP, or the Christian Democrats, have unseated their main rivals, the Social Democrats, in an election for Germany's most populated state, North Rhine-Westphalia. Know it? You know? Do you know it? You must know. We've all been there, right? North Rhine-Westphalia. It's the home of Beethoven. I mean, well, obviously not, not anymore. But also, it includes Dusseldorf and Cologne, the place, and probably some bottles of the smelly stuff as well. Anyway, the Social Democrats have had this as a safe seat in Germany pretty much since the Second World War. So this is quite a blow to them that Angela Merkel's party, the CDP, have taken it over. But also, the Social Democrats' party leader, Martin Schulz, he had predicted that a victory in North Rhine-Westphalia for his party would make him the next German Chancellor. So that is looking pretty unlikely. As it is, Merkel now looks like she has a pretty big boost to getting a fourth term in the federal elections in September. Imagine that, eh? A Conservative government just winning again and again and again as the candidate aiming to be down to earth and close to the people gets heavy losses in even safe areas. Oh. Oh dear. Anyway, if Merkel does stay the Chancellor of Germany, then Britain's Brexit negotiations will probably have even less movements than Beethoven did. Yeah, roll over, mate. Do you know mean? Like, angular, because it's like, it's not circ... Oh, all right, all right. Poll. Who doesn't love a good poll? What? 64% of you? Oh, all right. Well, polls are great. Who doesn't want to know everyone's opinions on everything all of the time? What? 50% of you with 13% saying they'd rather not know anything ever? Weird. 
Well, polls play a pretty big part in elections. We're always hearing how parties are doing in the polls or how leaders are doing in the polls or how certain policies are seen, but we're never hearing how the polls are, which is pretty selfish, right? Well, this week I set to find out exactly what the polls are and how they are. And yes, I know what a poll is, but there is a lot more to the way polls work in the political world than just ticking a box to say you think that Theresa May would be better at snorkelling than Jeremy Corbyn, or you think that Tim Farron would be a funnier cartoon animal than Caroline Lucas. So this week I spoke to Marcus Roberts, Director of International Projects at online poll site YouGov. No, YouGov. No, YouGov. Forever. YouGov has over 4 million participants and its political polls are regularly used by the political community as a guideline for possible election outcomes. So, Marcus very kindly explained to me just how accurate these polls are, why they haven't always been so accurate before, and why they're a pretty useful tool overall. And after talking to him, 99% of me would entirely agree. Yeah, I I know it's not 100%, but 1% just didn't know. My little toe is an idiot. Before this first interview on this week's show, a very, very quick... Excuses. So due to the death of the microphone, uh, which is also the title of my indie band, this was recorded using the microphone in my headphone set and Marcus is on his mobile with mostly reasonable reception. So apologies, as throughout this chat there are a few wobbles and they aren't just from my belly, but they hopefully it should be mostly dandy for your ear holes. So enjoy, here's Marcus. So uh, Marcus, let me just start by asking how exactly does polling work? I know that's a very simple question, but I think there's uh, listeners of the podcast and myself are sometimes a bit confused as to what exactly uh, polling is and how it works. Okay, it's a very simple question, but it's a very big question at the same time. And the very best thing I can do is probably uh, send a link for you to post for your uh, readers and listeners. Um, There's a wonderful polling primer, frequently asked questions piece that my colleague, um, Dr. Anthony Wells, wrote, and I'll send you that. But on a very basic level, polling is asking people how they are going to vote and then reporting it. We try to make sure that the people we are asking are as representative of the British public as possible. But even if we could be perfect in this and we're not, polling is only ever a snapshot of opinion at a given moment. It's not a projection of what opinion is going to be down the line. And that's one of the reasons why polling comes with a margin of error. Let's say that's give or take two or three points, either up or down, either way. So that means that polling does have limitations. Even though those limitations mean that polling can still be good at telling a general story. So in 2015, even though the polling industry made some mistakes, some serious mistakes, it got some of the big stories of that election right, like the rise of the SNP in Scotland and Liberal Democrats collapse across the country. And that's why it's always a bit uh, dangerous to dismiss all polling or embrace all polling at any given time. Sure, sure. So, so it, it, it helps give the general gist of where things are going, even if it's not to the point exact. That's right, yeah. And, and when you think about that margin of error factor, um, it, let's say that most polls have a margin of error of about give or take plus or minus 3%. If we got, as pollsters, everything else right, that means the polls should be within the margin of error of those results 95% of the time. 
Now, how we calculate that margin of error is quite a complicated formula, but we generally find that if you ask enough people, usually say 1,000 to 2,000 people in a poll, you can start to get a reasonably clear picture, albeit with that room for error. Um, and that error is explained by out of the, the sample that we take happening by accident to speak to more, say, conservative voters on one day or more labor voters on, on another. And that's why at YouGov particularly, we make sure that we adjust those numbers to reflect the demographic picture of, of the country or the electorate that we expect. And, and how, how are the samples picked? Is it random selection or is it do you focus on certain groups for certain questions you know because political divides now are sort of a lot less clear than i think they used to be uh between sort of areas or, or class divides so how do you choose samples how how i'm guessing it's probably quite a complicated question as well yes yeah, so we've always tried to make our polls representative on a range of demographics we look at age we look at gender we look at region we try to balance these things out between it um, and, and after the last election, we realized um, that our balancing, our sampling, was skewed to too many young people who were too interested in politics. And that's why we needed to take um, measures to adjust afterwards. Unless you do a complete census of the country, as occurs only every 10 years, you can't get uh, that 99% plus accurate picture of, of the British people. But what polling can give you is a 95% or thereabouts uh, accurate picture of the people, and that's what we're striving towards. Sure. And, and do, do you find that people are generally, because I, I've never actually been called by a poll, and I imagine I'd be quite keen to speak to someone if I was, because I'm, as you say, sort of very interested in politics. Um, but do you find that people generally answer? Like, what's the rate of people that refuse to respond to a poll call? Well, what's important there is to give people the ability to say, um, don't know, um, uh, as well as to refuse to answer uh, a given question. Um, and what we have at YouGov, because we've got a panel of several hundred thousand uh, British citizens on that panel answering questions in their tens of thousands every day, we're then able to make sure that at any given time, we've got what we think is a is as accurate as we can make it a sample of the population. Now, as I was saying earlier, we had a problem in 2015, um, and to some extent, uh, that will be to a lesser extent in 2016, with having too many political people, people like, dare I say it, yourself and me, answering too <laughs> many questions. Uh, and one of the things that we've been trying to do is look at that level of political informedness, if you will, and adjust for that. So a thing that we might do, for instance, is um, ask you how many members of the House of Commons are there? And then there'll be an answer, 750, 650, 350, and a bunch of others. Right. It, as a political junkie, if you give me the right answer, I know in, in taking that with a whole bunch of other questions that we ask you, that your level of political informedness is quite high. We can thus ensure that our panel isn't completely comprised of people who answered in less than a second. Oh, there are 650 members of the House of Commons. Everyone knows that. But only 649 of you consider the speaker, who is not technically a member, and you get the picture. 
<laughs> sure. I'm also really pleased you said 650 there because I know it's 650, but part of me went, uh-oh, I'm sure it is. Um, so you've con- <laughs> I, I had that slight wavering doubt about my own knowledge then. Um, so so and it was interesting. I know you mentioned uh, the 2015 uh, election in terms of speaking to too many people politically aware. Was There was also an issue with, with the Brexit um, referendum. Am I right in thinking that obviously the, that vote hadn't happened before, so you had no previous data to work with? The big problem with Brexit was who was going to vote and who was not going to vote. And our usual way, along with the whole polling industry's usual way, is, well, did you vote last time? And what Brexit resulted in and what explained Brexit in a lot of ways um, was that more people showed up who don't usually vote in elections than pollsters were expecting to show up. That said, it is wrong to tar all pollsters with with the same brush on this. Let's take of the eight major UK pollsters who were polling on Brexit, uh, four got it within margin of error. They were all online pollsters. Two of them, sadly not UW, unfortunately, got it right, actually, again, by using online methodologies, and four got it completely wrong, and indeed outside the margin of error, and they were all phone posters. Um, what that was about was about gauging who was going to show up. And the, the pollsters that got it right um, through, through hard work and through some good suppositions, I would say, as well, realized that a lot of uh, essentially working-class voters, particularly in the North, who don't normally participate in general elections, were so motivated by the issue of Brexit they were going to turn out that t- this time. And that was going to counter a lot of more middle-class, liberal, say, uh, London or Manchester-dwelling uh, voters who were going to turn out, yes, in large numbers, but in numbers that were more similar to that of a, a standard general election turnout. And that explains what was going on there. Sure. And, and so I guess part. does that mean with... <laughs> so I guess does that mean with, with this upcoming election, obviously we've... We've not only had Brexit, but we've had the 2015 one as, as well, not, not very long ago at all. Does that mean you've got a much better idea and, and a lot more kind of information about who will be going out to vote this time, which should then help with the, the polling methods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what is going to be an interesting challenge for all of us is to what extent was this newly mobilised electorate of Brexit voters, people who hadn't previously voted very much, in large numbers in elections, um, to what extent do they turn out again? And, and if they do turn out again, which way do they go? Um, and a personal pet theory of mine is that a lot of these voters, having been activated by Brexit, may well be motivated to return to the ballot box again. And that's why you could see some surprising uh, results, um, more likely for pro-Brexit uh, parties, uh, particularly the Conservatives, than might otherwise be the case. Right. And, and do you think do you think in that case as well, do you, do you think that the poll results sway people's opinions? You know, because if you see that, say, the party that you prefer is doing very well or the party you prefer isn't doing well, does that persuade, you know, does it kind of dictate the actual results in a way, do you think? I mean, I know it's a very hard thing to say yes or no for sure, but it must have an influence. No, that's, that's a, a great question. It's uh, actually that my partner and I discuss quite a lot because we're sad like that um, and interested in to what extent are we shaping narratives and to what extent are we responding to narratives. Um, and uh, my personal view 
is that um, political parties and organizations spend huge sums of money, millions upon millions of pounds, trying to sway public opinion and barely move the needle on any given issue. So if they're not doing it, act, succeeding actively when they're making an active effort to do so and putting huge amounts of, of money behind that effort, I wonder to what extent we could be accused of doing that passively when we're making no such direct effort to do so. That would be the argument for, for the defense. But the argument for the prosecution that I actually think also bears a lot of, 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 of heed um, is that voter opinion is shaped by mood and attitudes over a long period of time. So if you have a steady drumbeat of this party is doing badly, this leader is doing badly, aren't they doing badly, aren't they doing badly, aren't they doing badly, that can become, of course, a reinforcing cycle. And I think that, that, that a critique based upon that is a fair one. Then you're into a chicken and the egg situation. Um, is this about the fact, in the case of, say, Jeremy Corbyn, when he first appeared on the scene, his numbers were very low? As a consequence, there was constant reporting from that moment onwards on his numbers being very low. That probably then did indeed reinforce the fact that his numbers were very low. But his numbers were not very low as a consequence of the reporting of his numbers being very low in the first place. They were very low to start off with. Uh, and, so, and so in that sense, actually, the, the true answer to your question would be um, primarily no, but with a little bit of yes over the long run. Sure, I, of course. And because, I, I mean, there must also be a thing where... For example, if you see your party, um, I mean, we look to the next one, perhaps with the Conservatives who are so far ahead, that might meet, think that might make, sort of, for example, voters for a party doing very well think, oh, I don't need to go out and vote, uh, and therefore, you know, cause issues there. Does that has that been the case before? Yeah, I mean, political uh, parties and organisers and politicians worry about that complacency factor quite a lot. Um, in my experience, and, and this will be ooh, my 48th or 49th um, uh, election campaign professionally, um, uh, I would say that complacency is a massively overstated factor, actually. Rather, voters like to do what their friends, family, neighbors and colleagues are doing. Um, if everyone is voting, they are more likely to vote. If everyone is voting one way that they know in their, their circle of trust, they are more likely to vote that same way in that circle of, tr that circle of trust. Uh, and so I think the complacency factor as an argument may exist in some places, but it's absolutely outweighed by the importance of having a positive dynamic um, that, that sweeps across all of these groups and says, Let's vote. Voting is what everyone else is doing. Let's vote for this candidate. That's what that's who everyone I care about is also doing. Sure. And that's a really good argument for people persuading everyone around them to go and vote or tell everyone that they're voting, uh, I, I guess, as well. Oh, um, oh the, academic, the academic data on this is very, very clear. When um, Gerber and Green, who are the two great um, Yale University scientists who have studied this in the most detail in 19 different countries, uh, since 2000, looked at this. Um, the thing that can have some of the most positive effects in persuading anyone to either turn out in the first place to vote or turn out to support a particular party or candidate 
is a conversation with a family, friend, or neighbor about that voting intention. That is far, far, far more powerful. You're talking about multiple percentage points of turnout and persuasion effect than having a random volunteer turn up on the doorstep, let alone, God forbid, a leaflet coming through your letterbox. <laughs> I can I can absolutely see why as well, um, and and just uh, just out of interest, the, the the just the French elections that have just happened, the the polls for those got them really really spot on. I think very much so for the first round and very nearly for the second round. Is there anything that they did that you've now uh, feel that we the, the UK needs to be doing, or is there you know what was the reason they were so very good at it? Well, as an online pollster, I was delighted by this because almost all of those French polls that got it so right were online. Um, and we've generally been seeing online polls doing better in recent years, including, as I mentioned earlier, over Brexit. Um, as to the other reasons, it's a bit early to tell yet because uh, there were some problems in the second round. Uh, the polls did overstate uh, what Le Pen was going to get and understated what Macron ended up getting. So in that sense, there is definitely a luck factor that went on. Um, and I would want to study that for a good few more weeks, albeit after this election is done, to actually properly get a sense of what went right and what went wrong with regard to France 2017. Cool. And uh, and one last question is just uh, where, if listeners want to check out all of the YouGov polls and sort of get a feeling of what's May the results may well be uh, in in which I think we're, we're sort of fairly aware of what they're going to be anyway. But if uh, if they want to get a chance, to, can they find them all on the website? Yes, um, uh, all of our public polling is available. Um, our private polling for clients is um, available when it is uh, either released by them. We also release it on our website, um, or even if uh, someone leaks a poll by us uh, that we've conducted for them, we then proceed to, to release findings too. Um, what's doubly important, though, is that your listeners sign up to the EGOV panel, because uh, if they think, for whatever reason, they didn't like a poll number or a finding, we would like to hear what they think instead. Um, we conduct polls of any num- on any number of issues, not just politics, mainly, in fact, not politics, and we want to have as representative a sample of the British people as possible. And that means getting as many Britons onto our panel as we possibly can. Uh, So you don't get turned down for joining the panel. Um, You can earn points which get converted into money over time. And most importantly, you can help inform us and everyone involved in politics as to what the public actually think, not just when there's an election, but in between as well. Fantastic. Brilliant. I'm sure they'll all be uh, doing it. Judging by some of the emails I get from listeners, they're very keen to let people know their opinions. So <laughs> you'll be inundated. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Big thanks to Marcus for chatting with me. Uh, Marcus can be found on Twitter at Marcus A. Roberts. That's M-A-R-C-U-S-A Roberts. And I've posted the article he mentions about how sampling works on the partly political Twitter and Facebook. And I'll do that again this week. But it can also be found at ukpollingreport.co.uk forward slash FAQ hyphen sampling if you would like to do it yourself. Uh, hopefully that has helped clear up what polling is all about and how useful it is. And you should be able to see on June the 9th just how accurate they've been this time around. Although, fingers crossed, it's really not too accurate as bloody hell they are brutal for anyone other than the Tories. YouGov is of course at yougov.co.uk and since speaking to Marcus I've signed up and I've spent quite some time on it trying to decide if I heart prehistoric archaeology or dance studies more and how Harry Styles endorsing a party has never made me remotely care about anything he ever says or does. Do sign up and contribute if you can. Interview 2 is on its way in a bit but before that... Elections over here, elections over there, there seems to be elections every bloody where, elections every night, elections every day, and who to bloody thank for this is Mrs Bloody May. Only 24 days to the election. Yeah, I'm so excited. I've already planned all the kinds of moping that I'm going to be doing on June the 9th. Firstly, I'm going to loud swearing at the television. Secondly, tweeting something very sarcastic. Thirdly, feeling just a little bit miserable, followed by fourthly, looking up other countries and seeing how shit or better they are than us. Then fifthly, drinking while combining points one and two. It is looking pretty gloomy for anyone other than Theresa May, who's no doubt going to wake up on June the 9th, look at some nice shoes, have one very exceedingly strong hand, and then tell some people how stable she is before dismantling the country with a speed that had caused the flash to feel travel sick. This past week's news has mostly been hyperbolic, with little trinkets of information on what most of the parties will be peddling in their booklet of easily shattered promises. Sorry, I mean manifestos. But while the full manifestos and all their costings won't be released until a couple of minutes after I release this podcast on Tuesday, because, let's face it, everyone hates me, some of the pledges have been revealed so far. So on this week's election shiz, let's have a little look-see at what we got see in the manifestos. The Conservatives have released an 11-point plan, which is focused on the expansion of workers' rights. And it largely looks like another way of saying, we'll stretch workers' rights really, really thin so they cover a lot of ground but without much substance. There is a pledge to increase national living wage in line with earnings until the end of Parliament, which is great. You know, except for UK earnings having been overtaken by interest rates and the Chartered Institute of Personal and Development report stating average pay rises will be at their lowest in three years. So, the national living wage, which is already £1.45 less than the Living Wage Foundation has calculated it needs to be, and is only available to over 25s, will very quickly become the barely alive old god please kill me now wage. 
There is a guarantee that workers will enjoy the same rights after Brexit as they do under the EU, which would be a relief, as that should mean the government keeps the working time regulations, agency worker regulations, paternity and maternity leave and collective redundancy rights, which would be good. But then there are also a number of rights that are under British law only, such as the minimum wage, which is now superseded by living wage for over 25s, which, as we now know, isn't anything to go all jazz hands about. Which is a shame, as I'm really hoping for someone to make at least one pledge for 50% more jazz hands in the UK. Come on now, it makes some of the shittiest policies at least seem a little bit more fun. We're turning the NHS into a giant Foxtons. Boo! Jazz hands! Ooh! See? The Conservatives have also pledged for worker representation on company boards, which could be very interesting, as well as protections for gig economy workers, which is very, very, very long overdue. Though you could argue, and yes I will, it's my show, that it does also show a lack of want to actually tackle the gig economy altogether and destroy it, which should really be the priority as ultimately keeping the gig economy just allows companies to skimp on a lot of costs, including taxes. Otherwise, telling you to keep your shitty non-secure job, but hey, you'll get some badly paid maternity leave if you do, isn't really that great. There's also a pledge to extend the Equalities Act to those with mental health conditions, which again, sounds pretty good and long overdue on the face of it. But as has been mentioned in quite a few interviews on this podcast, the Equalities Act, which lumped the Sex Discrimination Act, Race Relations Act and Disability Discrimination Act together in 2010, has meant that some of those areas are more neglected than when they were dealt with by specifically dedicated departments. So putting mental health in there too may not mean that it gets more focus, it may mean it actually gets less. Plus, the Conservatives have promised 10,000 more NHS mental health staff by 2020, but with NHS staffing cuts and mental health trusts losing £598 million from their budgets every year from 2010 to 2015, you suddenly wonder how on earth they're going to manage 10,000 more staff to suddenly appear like magic, promising to work for nothing, which is the sort of shit that even people suffering from psychosis would struggle to come up with. Is that joke okay? I don't know, but I do know it's a lot better than making false promises that will leave people with psychosis without any of the proper care they actually need. Does that make my joke okay? No, still not really. Sorry everyone, sometimes writing is hard. Then there is the Conservative pledge to child bereavement leave, which is nice, especially as now widowed parents are losing bereavement benefits just 18 months after their partner dies uh, since that came in in April. Essentially, the Conservatives are just making you think about which family member is more beneficial to lose. And then the big pledge in the Tory manifesto is to allow workers' rights to take a year's leave to care for elderly relatives, which sounds astonishingly caring for the so-called nasty party. And then you find out it's a year's unpaid leave, and really all it is is a rewording of saying, well, we've fucked social care, so you should forfeit any income to do it instead. I honestly can't work out why anyone would think that this is a good pledge, unless they already have a lot of money and have a very capable elderly relative so they can just go travelling together for a year like some sort of amazing Pixar film. Otherwise, it is just dressing up you getting no money to do the work that the government is no longer funding. Brilliant. What next? A pledge that parents can have eight years off work unpaid to bring up their kids as a disguise to cut childcare, and a pledge that you can have 25 years unpaid leave to look after a relative accused of a crime because the prison system is overcrowded and fucked. Oh, and the Conservatives have promised MBs a free vote on repealing the ban on fox hunting, which makes little to no sense at all, as it's not popular with the public, being seen as a sort of archaic, elitist blood sport, which I think it is, but also, practically, I mean, not that we even should be needing to look at this practically, but it doesn't reduce fox numbers, it instead increases them, foxes aren't much of a threat to livestock, even if it did reduce foxes' uh, numbers, and it's very cruel, not just to the foxes who are killed, but also to the hunting dogs as well, who usually die young due to all the pressure that they're put under. So really, the only reason to bring it back would be ideological for the few toffs that love the feeling of murdering something inferior to them. 
so I suppose not at all dissimilar to how the current government operate the Department of Work and Pensions. Now, Labour haven't intentionally revealed much of their manifesto, and again, by the time you hear this, the full final draft will have been launched, which may make these next few minutes completely pointless. But taking a look at the leaked one that came out, there is a lot that I personally really like. I, there's my, there's my partisanness straight out. But it does also feel like the sort of manifesto that you'd put out there knowing that this election is going to be one hell of a tough shit fight. To be fair, I mean, that is exactly what I'd do as well. Um, you know, if I was the opposition to the Conservatives when such a landslide for them was predicted, I'd also pledge anything that sounded good. I'd say I'd nationalise ice cream, promise free scooters for everyone, especially grown-ups, and make sure all squirrels had first and second names. You know, stuff everyone wants. That is, that is what everyone wants, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, look, I know I'm being facetious as the manifesto is filled with left-wing joy. Uh, on the NHS, there are promises to reverse privatisation, which sounds pretty great, but it doesn't really explain how they would do that. Would it mean getting rid of PFI contracts? And if so, how would they repay all the debt built up by those while giving the extra £6 billion funding they've also pledged to the NHS? Now, £6 billion is meant to be collected via taxing higher earners, which sounds great, and I personally agree with that, but then there's a lot of case studies that show higher earners will always find yet more ways to avoid more tax so it won't bring that much in. And yet I'm not saying you shouldn't try, but they're slippery bastards, you know, especially the ones in oil, eh? 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 And if it doesn't increase tax intake, then does that leave the NHS just completely screwed by more rich people than just Richard Branson? Very tough. Also, £6 billion really isn't that much when you consider that it looks like the NHS is going to have a £10 billion black hole by 2020. And unlike space sci-fi black holes, if you go through that, you're not going to end up in another possibly better dimension, but instead just somewhere even more sad about the NHS than you were before. In social care, in Labour's manifesto, there's some very promising ideas about having a national care service, making carers allowance the same as job seekers. Great. While in housing, Labour are pledging to build 100,000 new council and social houses per year. Though they have also pledged to protect the green belt, even though most of it isn't very green. You know, it's like the Greenland of London, only it's not because it isn't really icy. I mean, it is in winter, but look, you know what I mean. No, you shut up. But the green belt really, really isn't as special as everyone thinks it is. And actually protecting that means there's not going to be a lot of space for any of those extra houses per year around London. Look, there are tons of things that sound pretty great in this Labour manifesto. Scrapping the bedroom tax, benefit sanctions, giving housing benefit back to the under-21s, scrapping the horrific disability assessment tests, a national education service, tons of money to invest in infrastructure, abolishing tuition fees, renationalising the rail, which some would say would be terrible as British Rail was terrible, but at least, unlike Southern Rail, their bloody trains turned up. And there's renationalising Royal Mail, which would be great as I still have no idea how many stamps an A4 envelope needs and how else would I send my signed pictures to people who haven't asked for them. Labour have also pledged no immigration cap but do support controlled immigration and they've promised to eliminate the current budget deficit over five years. Phew! Let's all get Billy Bragg to rewrite the national anthem while we're at it so it's all about chips and Ken Loach will take over the prom so it's only struggling brass bands that take part. But, and there are several buts in there and they aren't all peachy. The reversals to benefit cuts sound great but there is no mention, no mention in the welfare section on this draft version of reversing tax credit cuts, which are the ones that have really, really hurt people. Nor is there anything on the welfare cap and reversing that. There's a lot of state intervention involved with this, and that is good. It could be good, depends if you like it or not, but that will take a lot of work to put back into place after the government, the current government, have removed a lot of it. 
And tons of this manifesto is basically just having to reverse things that the previous government and the governments before it have done. And that's good, but it's a lot of work and a lot of money. And with Brexit looming like an evil weaver, there's no clue just how much money there's going to be for any of this. And there's not enough detail in the leaked manifesto to say how it could be done. But hey, by tomorrow, half of this could be gone from the manifesto or backed up entirely by figures or absolutely neither. And whether you're a Corbyn hater or a total jesbian, you should hopefully be pleased that compared to the last Labour election manifesto in 2015, this one at least has some different ideas to the Conservative one. You know, remember, compared to Ed Miliband's, oh, I'll do immigration control, but not that much, but a little bit, okay, have a mug. I mean, it's definitely not a return to the 70s, no matter what all the papers say, although a large part of that is because in the 70s, tons of the national infrastructure hadn't recently been destroyed by previous governments. The thing is, ever since George All the Jobs Osborne and David Oh Look a Pig Cameron started pitching the idea that Labour was responsible for a global financial crash, and Labour at no point ever said, hang on, we really aren't all that powerful, that narrative is stuck, is completely stuck. So it means unless everything in the Labour manifesto this time round is added up to complete and utter perfection, people will still think that this is more risky and less progressive than one that includes fucking fox hunting. There's also a big issue with people still not understanding the difference between deficit and debt. I mean, to be fair, I have to look it up every single time I hear it because often it's interchanged sometimes mid-conversation with politicians themselves. The deficit is the difference between what the government spends and what it takes in, and the debt is the debt accrued from government borrowing. And really, really, a lot of economists say that it doesn't matter too much if the debt goes up if it means the money is being used to balance the deficit, i.e. invest in infrastructure so we can trade more, create more work, get more money into the economy. Under the Conservatives, debt is currently at $1.729 trillion, which is $123 billion up on last year. But, as well as that, the deficit isn't down anywhere near as much as Osborne or Hammond has promised. So, the Conservatives asking them to trust us on the economy while Labour can't be trusted is like a gambling addict saying that you should loan them 100 quid because there's a chance you'll get a little bit of it back, but you shouldn't give it to this other guy because he once walked past a cash machine that ate someone's card. Oh, and look, I've ignored other manifestos here, I know that, and I will do more on them all next week when they've all got properly released just minutes after you hear this. But the Lib Dems have said that they will back a regulated cannabis market in the UK, which I like because it means even if they were in government and terrible, I wouldn't notice as I'd be off my face and very happy. Drugs policy in the UK has been terribly mishandled for quite a long time, and I've got someone I'm going to be talking to about it on this show at some point fairly soon, but there is a lot of evidence to say that decriminalising cannabis would help raise tax revenue, reduce crime rates and legal costs, benefit certain groups medically, and probably raise a fuckload of money for all snack companies. The Lib Dems are also pledging more paid paternity leave, which they are dubbing their Daddy Month policy. Seriously? Daddy month and weed. People think Labour's manifesto is going back to the 70s, yet all the Lib Dems need with those is a disco ball and start up funds for car washes. You know the youth, yeah? You know, like the old, but younger and always on the Snapchats? Yeah, them. Suggested turnout for voters aged 80 to 24 on the June the 8th election is only 42%, which would mean nearly two-thirds of people that age are going to have no say in the government that is probably going to affect them more than any other age group. At the moment, the housing situation makes it impossible for young people to own a property, let alone rent in some areas. Higher education costs and maintenance grants cuts mean university is now out of reach for many, and youth unemployment is higher than a decade ago. 
So things ain't easy for them kids and politicians won't focus their attentions or policies on groups that don't convert into votes. But at the same time, many young people don't feel incentivised to vote because they don't feel politicians are doing anything for them. So it's a horrible catch-22, and it's a shame because if those young people just felt the drive to get off their um, space hoppers and stop uh, bebowing pictures of their Game Boys, oh, God, I'm so old, then, you know, it could actually change the election results quite drastically in certain areas. So this week, I spoke to Josh Dell at Bite the Ballot, a long-running movement to get 18 to 24-year-olds proactively involved in politics. Bite the Ballot's new campaign, Turn Up, runs this week until voter registration for the June 8th election ends on May the 22nd. Josh explained why young people are feeling like voting ain't for them and what we should all be doing to get more voters to put crosses in boxes. Oh, and another very quick... Excuses, excuses! By the time I did this interview, I had my fancy new microphone, but I had absolutely no time to work out how to use it. So every now and then, it sounds a little bit like I'm speaking through a tannoy, but it is a very good, very clear tannoy, but it is still a tannoy. Josh was out and about, and we were regularly heckled by selfish vehicles that weren't silent, which, to be fair, is probably better for road safety anyway. You wouldn't want that sneaking up on you. But anyway, I think it's all turned out dandy, so here is my chat with Josh. Do enjoy. So, hi, Josh. Um, thanks very much for talking with me today. Uh, first question, straight up. And is there still an issue with voter apathy amongst young people? Because uh, as someone who goes out, and I do a lot of uh, gigs for various different campaigns and movements and things like that myself, a lot of them are run by young people. So in my head, I assumed that uh, maybe we'd have more 18 to 24-year-olds getting along with the snap election this year. I think it's, uh, it is much better than it ever has been. It's really uh, decreased to the extent in which we've got amazing campaigns going on, being coordinated by young citizens, most notably Laura Corrison with the uh, tampon tax, and, uh, which was a successful campaign using online petitions in which the government actually backed down uh, on the policy which uh, they're now, in theory, going to be uh, ending. But uh, still, there are communities across the UK for which politics is a dirty word, and it's just very foreign. And you have to remember, this all takes place in a palace in London, which uh, a lot of the country simply can't connect with. And in that sense, what needs to be done is, and we always try and do it by the ballot, is find ways in which you can bring not so much politics to the capital P, but politics around issues to um, young citizens and to really begin their process and their journey of engagement and making them actually feel like they do have a stake and that their views matter. Is, is, that, the biggest, is that the biggest issue with getting, you know, getting young people incentivised to vote, that there, there aren't enough policies for them or there, aren't, there isn't enough attention paid towards them? Is that, is that the biggest issue? Well, I think it's an issue in a way because um, I think for, for so long... For the uh, politicians when they're up at election, they're aware that the people that turn out to vote are fundamentally those in the 65-plus bracket. That's why you get policies like, you know, the pensions, triple-lock pensions, winter fuel allowance, bus passes. Uh, there's no doubt that the parties are aware that the person that's most likely to turn out is going to be someone over 65 as opposed to an 18 24-year-old, I think. Uh, so I think sort of the, base, the, the best example uh, to illustrate the fact that you know, young citizens are so frequently ignored is that uh, Sidi Khan puts this very well. He gives the case that you know, the day before an election, uh, if he's got the choice of canvassing a sixth form college or an old people's home, 
he said, you know, of course, I go to the uh, old people's home because I know those are the ones that will turn out. Uh, the sixth form college has got a huge risk that a lot of them won't actually bother to vote. They might not even be registered. Um, so in this sense, what's most important is that uh, 18, 24 year olds need to make clear that they're a force to be reckoned with. Um, and you know, in 2015 election, estimates from Ipsos Mori say that about 43 percent of 18, 24 year olds turned out. And this just needs to be higher because when it becomes clear that actually these this group is one that does want to have a say over what's going on and really does care about these issues, which so many do. It's just not necessarily doesn't manifest clearly through electoral politics, but it can. And when it does, this is when we will see a huge change in uh, sort of the politics that we have and the way in which it works and really di a big difference in the governments that we elect. I mean, so isn't this a bit of a catch-22 situation in that if young people don't vote, then policies won't be made for them, and then in which case it will disincentivise them to vote even more? <laughs> you know, uh, what, how, do we, how do you break that? Uh, how do you encourage young people that if they get out there and do it, then, then things might be more relevant and preferable for them? I think a lot of it's got to come to do with a change in the way in which... Um, should we say, I think that politics is presented and politics is understood. And a lot of it's got to do with what we find when we're doing work is that we're sort of teaching almost a process of unlearning. So many people are growing up thinking politicians are all corrupt. Uh, you know, all they, all they think about is money. They've got very little interest in doing their job, as I think is really truthfully the case. 99.9% of politicians really do care about society, but still... The, this issue is one that hasn't yet managed to be, they've managed to, particularly post-expenses scam, that hasn't been, there hasn't really been any effective way of destroying it. And therefore, I think we're trying to, we're always saying that we need to create this new generation, which does care about the issues and really begins with the issues. You know, we, we, for us, it's very important that someone is aware that being engaged in politics doesn't mean you're there in Westminster, it means you care about issues like the fact that your community centre has been shut down, uh, libraries are being shut down, the cost of your ticket for your getting on the bus has gone up. By caring about that, by virtue, you are being political and therefore this is the place to begin. Um, so, And on particularly on a local level, the more that this is going on, the more that people are taking up issues that are key to their community, this is where we can really begin to see a greater growth in engagement. Uh, across the country. So, I mean, it would make probably quite a different, uh, quite a massive difference, ju judging by what young people care about, it would probably make quite a massive difference to election results and general political structure of the country if young people voted, considering it's such a large percentage of the population that aren't bothering. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, I, I, what, why was um, there was quite a large turnout or, or a higher turnout for the EU referendum last year, wasn't there, for 1824? I think it was about 64%. Was that due to, you know, was that different because it was a, a binary vote and it and obviously had a direct impact on their future? What was it that drove young people out for that, but less so for a general election? I think you are right. It's got to be the fact that there's a binary here, uh, one that was seismic in the impact that it could have uh, and will have uh, on the future for everybody. Um, as was evident with the Scottish referendum as well, when you have when it comes out and you're given such a simple choice, as opposed to the difficulties that first past the post presents when you're voting, uh, people do turn out more. Not as Many, as would hope, you know, it can't be that 89% turnout in the Scottish referendum, but, but still very good. 
Um, and I would say, yeah, it's arguably when it's much simpler. And I have to remember that the system here is quite complex and it's hard. A lot of people do struggle to tell the difference between political parties. That's one of the most common complaints, you know, oh, they're all the same. So I think the referendum presented an entirely different mm, arrangement, which people weren't familiar with, but were given a lot more belief that, that when they went to the ballot box, it mattered all the more. Sure. And, and as it, I mean, is part of the issue as well that the registering, I mean, I, mean, I was going to say, is, is it hard to register to vote? I know that there were lots of changes in vote registration. Event. It was more difficult for university students because uh, I think it used to be for whole campuses could, you know, or, or dormitories could vote, but now it's individuals. Have, have changes to that made things more difficult? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we did a big report last year called Getting the Missing Millions on the Electoral Register, which is about how this change from household to individual elector registration has impacted um, the registry. You know, we saw it was about gone down since then, but an estimated 8 million were missing in the aftermath wow. of the transition from uh, household to IER. It's now gone down significantly uh, in the aftermath of particularly the registration drives uh, that took place in the build-up of the EU referendum. But it has made things more, more difficult. Uh, we've been campaigning a lot on various things to improve this. Most notably, been really pushing and just seen uh, something very good come through in the Higher Education Research Bill, which was just passed uh, before Parliament was dissolved. Um, and what we've been pushing for, there's a fantastic system they have at Sheffield University in which there's an arrangement between the council and the university which means that every student, when they enroll each year and when they enroll again in subsequent years, when they fill in their details, they have the option to be, in effect, automatically put onto the electoral register. Oh, brilliant. Uh, which is a hugely uh, beneficial system, which means that 76% of students in Sheffield in, I believe, 2015-16 were on the register, which is mad. That's really impressive. And yeah. lots of other universities are using it. Uh, Bath as well, amongst others. Uh, I think Oxford's got a system, similar system implemented. Uh, but what's happened is in the Higher Education Research Bill, they put on, uh, began with an amendment proposed by uh, Baroness Royal, and it progressed into now not quite the similar system, but one that makes it clear that universities, by all universities by 2018, will have to have some kind of uh, arrangement which makes a student voter registration part of the, their processes, which is huge. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. I suppose, obviously, a difficulty with this one was a snap election, so it's not been able to be rolled out in time, but we presume that for the next election after that, it hopefully would be a higher turnout as a result. Exactly, exactly. Because just students are so mobile, right? You think about it, when you're at university, you move, what, at least three times? Mm. Uh, so, therefore, it's a common, common thing that on election day, people will they'll go to the wrong polling station because that's where they think they're registered or own something like that and they just end up not being able to vote or they end up, they thought they had, they had a postal vote in a different address and they end up mucking that up and they can't vote. So all of these things can happen and therefore with little processes like that, which they have at Sheffield, you, there really is a lot of hope for ensuring that students are able to get out there and participate in democracy. Yeah, that sounds like an absolutely brilliant, uh, brilliant policy to come through. And, and I was going to ask, obviously there was, there was a report recently that the uh, Cabinet Office has had to slash funding towards pushing for a youth vote. Is that going to make it a lot more difficult getting people along this time round? And wh why do you think it's not a priority for the Cabinet Office to focus more money on this area of missing voters? I think the Cabinet Office does a huge amount of good work. Uh, I really... But these are... 
times in which cuts are occurring all over the shop. And that really does mean that groups like Bite the Ballot have all the more pressure and are really, we are willing to step all the more up to the task of having to ensure that young voters do get out there, do register and do turn out. Sure. Is that, so I was going to say, but does that mean that you've now got a harder job? Because I know that there was this funding that obviously went to yourself and to other groups. Uh, what does that mean that you're having to do instead? I mean, it really is that it's not so much a change for us, but it's more we need to create bigger coalitions of groups. So, for example, with the campaign that we're running for the EU referendum, we're bringing on how can we get as big a reach as possible? So that's why for us it's a combination of working with community partners on the ground, but also we're thinking, right, let's work with who are some of the biggest brands in which young people are interacting with. And so one of our partners is Uber. So this weekend in the build-up to the uh, deadline on May 22nd, when you book an Uber, um, what will happen is the splash screen will come up when you book your car and say, do you want to register to vote? Click on that. Do that. may seem minor, but what it means is that on a... Uh, an app that arguably like a huge amount of young people are using, they will be interacting with the processes which let them take part in democracy. Um, another thing we do is we have a partnership with uh, Starbucks, which, um, you know, forgetting about um, anything else, what it matters the most is that that's a brand that a lot of, again, young citizens are very familiar with. So we run these events called Decafs, Decaf Democracy Cafe. Um, and what happens is it's basically a familiar place, you get a free coffee, and then we're basically bringing, again, young people into an environment which they're very comfortable in, uh, and they can discuss issues, discuss politics, uh, and it's proven to be a hugely effective way of engaging uh, people. So, that so, it's, so again, yeah, it's really, really about how can we get access to lots of different places where younger demographics are, and how do we engage them through you know, very strategic partnerships, which mean you know, we can't, we're a relatively small team, but through forming the coalitions that we have for the Turner campaign this year and the Turner campaign previously, uh, we're actually able to have a huge reach. Excellent. So that leads me straight on to the last question, really, which is, um, I know this week you're starting the Turn Up campaign. Can you tell me and the listeners a bit more about what that is and how people can take part and help, really, help push a bigger youth vote for this snap election? Absolutely. So Turn Up is campaign uh, coordinated by, by the ballot alongside a huge range of partners, uh, all of equal standing. And the aim, in effect, is to register as many young people as possible between um, between today, which is when the week of action begins, May the 15th, and the deadline uh, on the following Monday, which is, where are we, May the 22nd. Yeah. And then onwards from that, get out the vote. Want as many people as possible to turn out on June the 8th so that we can see that young citizens are heard and they're heard loudly. Um, and in summary, really, the campaign is a big coalition between a wide range of partners, uh, some on the ground, like groups like My Life, My Say, Uprising, uh, Beat Freaks, who are based in, out in uh, Birmingham, uh, Reclaim, who are based out in Manchester, and then we've got working with some tech companies, uh, specifically working with Uber, Uber Eats, uh, with Twitter. So we'll be sort of handling Twitter's um, page on the 22nd of May to really make sure that people are p- pushing out Lots of uh, 
encouraging messages about registering to vote before the deadline. And it really is just a huge campaign bringing together all these different partners from across the field to encourage a huge voter registration drive and an even bigger turnout amongst 18 to 24-year-olds who are the future and need to be heard. And whatever you think about this election, it will be noted that it has the potential to be the one where young people turn out and bigger numbers than we've ever seen before. Sure. And, and for, I mean, I'm guessing, a, or I hope listeners to my show are already registered to vote, because why would they keep listening every week when I tell them to? Um, so, and, and, but what would you recommend <laughs> to people who are already registered and are already incentivised and perhaps maybe know young people or don't, or, you know, don't necessarily work with young people? What, what, what can we do? What's, how, do, how can we help with this? All right. There's two ways of doing it, online and off the ground. So, as I said, this is Turnoff's Week of Action, and we're just encouraging people in whatever way possible they can to encourage people to register to vote. Online, go on www.turnup.org.uk. You can access all of the resources for the campaigns, from logos, headers, shareable assets with information on them about the benefits of registering to vote. You can get um, distributing those. Any communications you do, put on hashtag TurnUp just to promote the cause, get the um, build up the momentum on the ground range of things you can do the simplest is run a registration rally now i know that sounds oh my god how does that work really easy just find uh somewhere in your local area library is good community center promote it um and be there tablet works well phone ipad laptop whatever and just be there to offer that basic service of registering people been lots of cool campaigns i've seen popping about nice one at ucl uh register to vote pet a goat uh, I believe that's happening uh, later on this week. <laughs> that's brilliant. Really simple. What happens? You register the vote, you get to pet a goat. They've actually brought in a pet, a pet, pet exit. I know, I know, I know. Love it. Incredible. Um, but but be, be, we encourage you to be creative. Um, use, use the hashtag uh, turn up. And that is the biggest action that you can do between uh, now and the 22nd of May at 11.59 when the deadline passes for registering to vote. After that, be in your community and try and get these conversations going. You know, something as simple as if you're queuing, if you're queuing up, you know, at the shops, don't look at your phone. Talk to the person in front of you and say, "What are you doing? Are you um, you taking part in the election?" Maybe not ask them who they're voting for straight away. Some people don't take that question very well. But just get talking about the issues uh, in the build-up to um, June the eighth. And I'd say so those really are the, the best things you can do to ensure that young citizens are turning up. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, I would encourage all our listeners to go out and get a goat, first of all, um, and then uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. That's a scientific study waiting to come out about that, <laughs> the, the correlation between uh, paying goats and registering to vote. Like, it's, uh, it's a big one. Big, big thanks to Josh for chatting with me. Um, do get involved in the hashtag turn up campaign and maybe just get a goat as well. I mean, I think you just get one anyway, just so you can say things like, I kid you not, and then point to it and awful puns like that. Uh, genuinely love that goat idea. It's like, why why aren't we all just voting with goats? Uh, bring it bring it to all the... Anyway, anyway, Bite the Ballot are on Twitter at Bite the Ballot and Facebook on Bite the Ballot. And the website is also bitetheballot.co.uk. God, they've got that branding down. And I think this is a seriously, hugely important issue. Um, and next week, I'm also going to be speaking to someone on a different campaign that focuses on a similar age group from a different aspect. But look, if you are a person of that age listening to this, then please, please, please make sure you're registered to vote. Tell your peers to as well. Um, I know it's very patronising. We were constantly telling you to do it, but it, the difference it could make. Um, if you know people of that age, talk to them about 
about it. Talked about why it's important to vote. Uh, another really good campaign uh, has been launched this week by some excellent people called Rise Up, R-I-Z-E Up, um, and that's supported by Professor Green, Doc Brown, other people from Cluedo. Ha! A joke! Um, also, Akala, Riz Ahmed, Rudimental, and other really excellent artists that I love. And they've got a special incentive where Stormzy's producer, Five Beats, has created a track for anyone to upload and record a verse over. And if you take part in the Rise Up campaign, you can win a chance to get your verse recorded over in a central London studio at the end of this month. So if you know any musical types who need a voter-based push, then please send them to www.riseup.org. More interesting people to be interviewed next week. And please do keep your excellent suggestions for guests coming in. And as always, you can let me know who to harass with interview requests by contacting me at Paul Bobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com, or, you know, just take an Instagram pic of something that reminds you of the person you'd like me to interview, tag me in, and then I'll not understand, untag myself, and report you for spam. Right, you lot have nailed potential campaign slogans for the Conservatives, Labour and the Lib Dems over the past few weeks, so this week's podcast question of the week was an ask for general election quips for Captain Planet's favourite crew, the Green Party. At Rainy101 said, I didn't want to use any electricity to send a tweet. It's what they would have wanted. At Life underscore Academic said, uh, just use last time's slogans. They're fans of recycling. You see what, see what I did there? See, because the Greens have a number of eco... Oh, oh, you get it. I do indeed. It's really damn good. Um, at Cucosaurus Flex says, get us on the fucking telly 2017. And uh, the Greens taking the protest vote back from the fascists. Uh, at Hello Dave says, waiting for the call from TV or radio. Small poster. Hello. Uh, poster would be a waste of paper. They might not want that. At Mini Mayor says uh, the Green Party sharing jobs so there are more to go around. How bloody thoughtful of them. Um, at Budgie says Labour Tory, Labour Tory. Why recycle your government? Vote Green. Surely they'd be up for recycling as previously suggested. At Stephen McDade said uh, vote Green for fuck's sake. Wonderful, Stephen. Um, Matt Hoss has sent two. He said, uh, Green Party, we love recycling, but please don't recycle the current government. Uh, and Green Party, we're mental about being environmental. Yeah, I'm not sure that one would pass the uh, the Green Party are fairly PC. And Rob Skeen said, the Green Party, Pepe the Frog was our mascot first. Oh, it's not easy being green. It really isn't. Uh, although, to be fair, if you are actually green, see a doctor. Um, excellent work and those should be enough to power the Greens to some electoral victories and if not at least there's no carbon emissions from any of those um, apart from all the ones I've personally released just reading them out oh damn it's worked against us look next week uh, will of course be slogans for UKIP and I'm sure you've already got billions of those and you should be able to come up with more witty slogans than they have MPs look out for the question on Twitter or the Facebook group next Sunday And that is all for this week's show, and I've barely skimmed the surface of the past week's news uh, with today's, and we're already out of time. I've done nothing on Trump, nothing about the Tory MP telling a schoolgirl to fuck off, which is tricky because that is really wrong and MP shouldn't be doing it, but I've also been on a bus full of pupils leaving school and felt very much like saying the same. Uh, and I haven't said anything about the millionaire backing pro-Brexit MPs, which is bizarre, as I'd have really thought they'd all want to leave. But that is OK, because I'm going to be back next week to tickle your cochlea with my vocal farts. Uh, please do, I'm probably never going to 
say that again. Please do send me your thoughts on the show at Bro on Twitter, Bro Facebook group, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or just tell me about anything else you'd like to see on the podcast or here on the podcast between now and Doomsday. Sorry, June the 8th. Uh, please do review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Donate to the Bro Patreon or the ko-fi.com uh, Bro page. Um, spread the word in general, and if you see two magpies, ask them where they've been and if it was fun. Uh, thanks, as always, to Acast for hosting the show, my brother, the last sceptic for all the musics, my other half at Pro Resting for putting up with me ruining every single Monday to do this stupid thing, and all the shouting I do at the telly, and you lovely lot for going all Caesar every week and lending me your ears. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by Girl Numbers and Boy Numbers, which are uh, Girl Numbers 6121 and uh, Boy Numbers 807. Look, if you had that on a number plate, I'd think you were a twat. Fact. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.